On this week's episode, we welcome CEO of the National Park Foundation, Will Shafroth. Before we get to our celebrated historical national parks, let's first learn a little about Mr. Shafroth. Where did you grow up? Denver, Colorado. Wow. Born there in the late 50s, and uh, I'm a fourth-generation Coloradan, so my family had deep roots in that, that great state. What did your parents do for a living? Father was an attorney. My mom taught school, elementary school. When did you first develop an interest into nature, outdoors? Good question, Arthur. I grew up in the country, south of Denver, and, and we had farm fields and swamps and trees and irrigation ditches that, that were right near our house. So uh, there wasn't a lot of social media back then. There weren't any gadgets. We didn't watch a lot of TV. We were expected to go outside and play and figure it out. And as a consequence, I, you know, just my brothers and sisters and I spent a lot of time, you know, be in nature and growing to love it. You know, you know it's, what's, what is fascinating is that when you think about uh, the national parks, you think about Yosemite, you think about the Grand Canyon, but two-thirds of these parks were actually put in place to preserve our historic and cultural resources. That's right. It is a, it's a lesser-known fact about our national parks. Like you said, you know, something around 300 of the parks are, are really about telling America's story. And whether that be the, the, the Lincoln Memorial right here in Washington, D.C., or the, the uh, Cesar Chavez's cabin in Central California, or the Japanese-American internment camps, or Jefferson's um, home at Montpelier. These are places that are part of our national park system that tell the story of who we are as a people, where we come from, and where we're going. And, and talk about how every president leaves their indelible print on the parks. Yeah, so there's basically two ways to create a national park site. Either Congress has to pass a law to create it, but many of them are actually created through executive order. And so in, in 1906, the Antiquities Act was created, and, and every president since 1906 has used that authority to set aside land for conservation and parks. And so, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, a Republican, a Democrat, from the north or the south, the east or the west, people have a shared interest in protecting these places for our nation and for its citizens. I want to go back. Yeah. So uh, you had an appreciation from your parents, but that also led you to government service. It did. I, I, I was always drawn to public policy and government service, and so, um, yeah, I started my, my career out in California and, and, and ultimately spent three years working for the Secretary for Natural Resources in California under Governor Pete Wilson, and I had a portfolio that focused on land and water and ocean protection for the most part. Uh, Governor Wilson was a very strong uh, proponent of conservation when in his various roles as in elective office. And then later moved to Colorado, did some things, actually ran for Congress, uh, Armstrong, and, but ultimately went to work for Ken Salazar, as a sec who, were, who was a Secretary of the Interior in 2009. And there I did a lot of work around national parks, my first real exposure in a policy sense around national parks. But you were appointed by President Obama, Correct, yes. which is an honor, yeah. a recognition. Talk, talk about um, the Department of Interior okay. and its relationship to the Park Service. Because you know, people know uh, about the Department of State. Sure. They know about 
other agencies that's, that are sort of sexy, but not about the Department of Interior. Help us dive a little into exactly the importance of that agency. Sure. It was created back in 1849, uh, and it was... Uh, a department that, that held a lot of the land that the federal government owned. So it has within it the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, which controls over 250 million acres of land, the Bureau of Reclamation, which manages water in the West, was very involved in this recent announcement about Colorado River usage uh, in the West, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey, um, and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and Bureau of Ocean Energy Safety. Those are places that manage offshore oil drilling and management. So it's, a, it's an agency with a broad diversity of, of responsibilities around energy development, around science, around managing our relations with uh, the tribal community, uh, as well as conservation. Fish and wildlife and parks are much more conservation-oriented agencies. And talk about your role during your years at the Department of Interior. Yeah, I had a, a big responsibility. I, I was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Fish and Wildlife and Parks, and if you can say that 10 times fast, I'll give you an award. But it's, uh, I oversaw the, the work mostly of the National Park Service, but also a lot of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, to, to, to manage it from the perspective of the, of the Secretary, to, to look at the policies that, they were, that we were moving forward on, creating new units in the National Park System to ensure that, that there was good you know, conservation activities and manage energy development with other agencies that, that we were working closely with. So um, it, it was a really interesting job, 35,000 employees, about $5 billion budget collectively between those two agencies, more than uh, 175 million acres of land under management. So uh, a, a lot to do on a daily basis. Was it a natural progression for you to go from the Department of Interior where you probably felt your work was not complete, it's never completed, yeah. you wanted to continue it? And a part of that was becoming eventually the CEO of the National Park Service Foundation. Yeah, there was a national arc for me, Armstrong, because one of my responsibilities for Secretary Salazar to re was to represent him as his delegate on the National Park Foundation board. At that time, the, the Secretary of the Interior was, the, the by statute, the chair of the board of the, of the foundation. And so he, he couldn't go all the time because he's a busy person and doing lots of things. So I sat in for him got to know the people on the board, understood the mission well, worked closely with them to help appoint good people that the secretary appointed over the years, and then you know, helped them build a more collaborative relationship with the Park Service. And, and you know that was actually a big piece of unfinished business for me because I felt I could see where that organization could go. Talk about, I really want people to understand what the National Park Foundation is. It's not the National Park Service. No, it's not. There, but. What you do? I saw on on your website where in 2021 alone, the National Park Service uh, Foundation uh, gave away almost 85 million dollars to the preservation of the parks. So talk about that foundation and the role it plays in the upkeep and preserving these rich legacies. Yeah, thanks for asking. The National Park Foundation was established by Congress back in 1967 to be the official charity for the national parks. And it was a recognition that people in this country love their national parks. You just have to go there and experience the awe and wonder and your curiosity is awakened and you appreciate our history and culture in a greater way. So there was, the foundation was an opportunity to, to, for people to give back, to, to contribute something to places that they love. It's also a recognition that 
that supporting parks isn't is a team sport. It's not the job of government alone because government funding, you know, is generally going to fall short of having them be as good as they could be. And so that's the role that we play and the role that the 450 local organizations who work around the country to support local parks around the country. So we raise money from individuals, foundations, corporations to support individual programs and projects in the parks around the country that could involve education of young people, uh, hiring uh, 18 to 25 year olds to do service projects in the parks, do, do science work, protect land and wildlife, to, you know, one example we did recently, I shared with you, Armstrong, is that we, we purchased the birth and life home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta and gave those to the National Park Service to own and manage forever. But you also make sure, which I think is critical, that the parks are accessible. Correct. Yes. That's a good point. That's another important thing we do. You know, we believe that, you know, these, are, these parks belong to all of us. In a lot of ways, they're the physical manifestation of our democracy. Your, your share of Yosemite National Parks is the same as mine because you're a citizen of this country. And so one of the things that we want to do is to ensure that every American feels that the parks belong to them, that they're welcome in them. So we want to make sure that young, old, veterans, physically disabled, uh, people from all races and religions all feel that they're places for them. So you're connecting people to these historical places. Exactly. So we're trying to make sure that, you know, maybe you have a, an affinity group that you that you like to do things with it. We want to make that group feel like they're a part of this, the parks as well. And so we make grants, we, we do marketing promotions. We had something called Find Your Park for years, which is a way to invite multicultural millennials into the parks because we knew that through the surveys we'd done that they weren't coming. So we targeted them through advertising and corporate sponsorships and we really elevated that audience in the parks. You mentioned young people. Um, talk about youth engagement and education as it relates to the parks. So one of the things that, that, that we realize, Armstrong, is that to, to my earlier point that not everybody, especially economically underprivileged communities and families, have a harder time going to the parks. They may not know about them, they may not be going to have a history as a family of going there. So one of the things that we do is we have a program called Open Outdoors for Kids. And we basically it's focused on Title I fourth graders and basically the schools that they, they go to. And we provide uh, field trips. So young people in, in the Los Angeles area, we do big field trips to Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, which is accessible within an hour of most of the schools in, in LA and that region so that they can have an experience with them. And when, and when you say that, you're underwriting the cost for them yes. to have this yeah, experience. we're paying okay. for the bus transportation, for the, the, the lunch that they're getting. We make sure there's a ranger there and they, and they have something to do for three or four hours. It's an outdoor classroom. It is, exactly. Get them out of the classroom, teach them about something in their backyard. And what's so gratifying about that, Armstrong, is that you see the look in their eyes and all of a sudden something changes. They realize, oh, I didn't know this existed. I didn't know this was possible. And it's both um, on the natural resource side when you see something magnificent like the Grand Canyon or whatever and you're a young person, but also if you learn something. One of my favorite places in the park system is, is Little Rock Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, to learn the story of how that school was integrated back in 1957 mm -hmm. and, and to hear the stories of people directly who were there that day and how that really ch helped change the arc of our country and, and the possibility that everybody had a right to a good education. You know, let's talk about 
the history, you adapted into it a little in, before we had to go to break, the history and culture of the Park Service. So, so you mentioned uh, to me earlier that you're going to go visit Yosemite National Park this year. Yosemite was the first place in our country that was set aside for conservation purposes. And it happened in the middle of the Civil War by Abraham Lincoln, 1864. That happened. There wasn't a National Park Service at that time. There wasn't really even a concept of what a national park was at that point in our history. But President Lincoln saw fit. That he'd seen pictures of that place and said, we must set that aside. That, that needs to be there for future generations. The Yellowstone National Park was the first uh, place that was called a national park back in 1872. And the park system was established and the park service was established in 1916. By then, there'd been a number of places that had already been added, Grand Canyon, et cetera. But the national, in 19, excuse me, 20, 1916, what was important about that, Armstrong, was he, it was recognized that we're going to create a system of parks. That these are not just going to be one-offs, but we're going to create a system and we're going to create a service of professionals who are going to understand how to manage these places and also provide the benefits to the visitors and the tourists that want to come visit them. So it was the first organized system in the, in the world of, of such a, uh, an activity. And so since then, the Park Service you know, broadened its mission. It wasn't just places that, that dealt with you know, beautiful things like uh, Grand Canyon or the Yosemite or Yellowstone, but they added other places like Mesa Verde National Park, which was the first place I visited um, as a young person in, in southwestern Colorado to preserve the, the culture of the Anasazi Indians. And, and so that was an, an important part of the arc of what the Park Service was going to do. These are beautiful places, but they also tell an important story of our nation and, and the people who lived here before we did. Go ahead, please. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, then I think there was an understanding like, well, we need to think about telling a broader story about people like Abraham Lincoln. So in, in 1922, they opened the Lincoln Memorial as a, as a place to honor Abraham Lincoln. And it's a uh, it's a place that, that we're continuing to improve. We, we've been involved recently, Armstrong, in the, in the funding of a new addition in the undercroft of the Lincoln Memorial to tell more of a story about Abraham Lincoln and tell a story about the 100 years of the Lincoln Memorial and what's happened in, in that space that's now part of our American history. And so the Park Service is, 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 is really in the business of, of not only protecting beautiful places and important landscapes, but also telling America's story and just telling the truth about it. I know that's, having seen your show, that's what you do. You're just interested in having a conversation about the truth and let people make up their own minds about it. So that's, that's one of the things I love about the parks. It's interesting you mentioned the excavation going on under the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. Talk more about that. What history is underneath? Well, having been down there a dozen times, I can tell you it's fascinating just even the architectural and construction that, that went on in, you know, between about 1916 and 1922 when they, this was basically a swamp, so they had to create fill to, to, to build up that place, um, a, a, slight, a slight hill that it sits on. Uh, but to learn about how it was actually constructed is a fascinating thing. The forms that they used, they didn't have plywood back then, they were using little, you know, six to eight inch forms that went up 60 feet from, from the ground up to the, to the roof. And, they, and the pilings go down another 40 to 60 feet into, the, into bedrock. And so this was happening over 100 years ago. So that's fascinating in itself, but also to learn about, um, you, know, you know, the history of the mall and, and how the Lincoln Memorial fits in there. But again, 
the history of, of when Marian Anderson gave her famous concert back in the 30s, on the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King, by the myriad of other war protests or whatever who went on their celebrations that happens on the, on the, on the Lincoln, is a part of our history and, and it's, a, it's a representation of our democracy and, and free speech. It's a place where people can go and speak their mind about things. You know, one of the things that you're speaking to now, which I find to be quite insightful, you're really speaking to communities and workforce. Yeah. Let's delve into that. Well, you know, the, 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 the workforce of the, of the National Park Service is, is uh, 22,000 full and part-time employees. They are, they are people who, from all over the country, all walks of life, who share a passion and love for the national parks. And so these people are, you know, like, like many th uh, public agencies, you know, it's an aging workforce, and, and we need to be, be mindful about what we can do to support the National Park Service to ensure that we have good quality people that are going to be coming into these jobs that are so important as front-facing people to, to the American people and foreign tourists from all over the world. So we are, what we're trying to do is, is build on the, the, the very basic work we're doing with these fourth graders I talked about. You know, give young people an opportunity to learn that this is something that, that we have as an asset in our country but also to get the, 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 the middle school children doing science projects in the parks and to give these 16 to 25 year olds uh, an opportunity to work in parks doing service projects, building trails, planting trees, uh, restoring historic structures, uh, doing science projects, whatever it might be, and to gain a curiosity so that they're the future of the parks. And, and, and those people that we employ through these service corps represent the broad diversity of this country. And we intentionally actually create service corps that are that are in, that are from uh, affinity groups. We're doing an all-female fire crew in the Pacific Northwest. We have a you know a Latina a crew that works in Grand Teton National Park every year. And so we we intentionally try to make sure that there's a broad diversity of our citizens that are being exposed to parks, so that they can represent um, themselves through the National Park Service as members of the employee base in the Park Service later. Well, you know, when I listen to you, because uh, obviously when they talk about removing Confederate structures because of how it sometimes make people feel, but that's history. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I, I would not be one to advocate removing it. Just enhance it and speak to everyone's contribution to the country. Because look at what you're uprooting. Right. Well, that's the Park Service's philosophy, too. They're, they're, they're not about taking down... Confederate statues in, in their places. Those are that's part of the history of those places, and whether it be Civil War battlefields or the investments that, that we made uh, right here at the Arlington House, the home of Robert, Robert Lee, and, and telling the story of who he was in our country. But within that story, we also tell the stories of the, the slaves that worked for him um, in, in his facility. And so one of the lovely things I love about that, that Armstrong is that through that process, the ancestors of the slaves and the ancestors of, of Mr. General Lee have come together and, and created a really important conversation between the two of them. And that's part, something that can happen when you're telling the whole story. But, but, but in your role, you must be neutral because you must preserve the history. Exactly. Totally neutral. We're about making the investments and letting the Park Service tell the stories. What about the resilience and sustainability of the service? Well, it's an important thing, you know, the, the, the parks are 85 million acres strong. Uh, they make up a, a 
thousands of miles of coastline in this country, a lot of lakeshore lines, uh, and, and in some places like the Everglades, they're in the path of hurricanes and other weather disasters that, that are affect, uh, affect people all over the place. And so we help the Park Service uh, in make investments to ensure that the parks are resilient over time, that, that you know, as sea level rises, that they can adapt and ensure that the, those facilities that they have there can continue to perform the services. And you're at the whim of nature. Correct, absolutely. We've done an interesting thing recently up in Cape Cod National Seashore, uh, Armstrong, where we've helped to invest in the restoration of a historic salt marsh up, up in Cape Cod. And it's a place that, you know, 50, 100 years ago, they put in dikes to control the flooding and the doing the things that, that we thought were the right things to do at the time, and they served a purpose. Anymore, it turns out there's a, a really irritating uh, saltwater mosquito that the, the residents of the area really don't like a lot. And so the, the, in the process of restoring the traditional tidal flows in that area, we're gonna eliminate the, the bad mosquito and ensure that those wetland systems up there are, make a much more resilient Cape Cod well, National but, but how do you do that and also protect the ecosystem? Well, that's what we're trying to do actually by taking down the, 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 uh, the, the flood, in, uh, the dams and the other areas that they, they, they built over the years to, to create some, what they thought was an efficiency form, efficient form of flood control, they actually made it worse. Mm -hmm. we, we, and so we know now that by making it as it was when nature was there initially, it'll be more resilient. You know, I, I, I am just so, there's just so much that we're talking about, and we have not gotten to the, the, the parks right. them, themselves, because there is just so much thinking and thought that goes into this process and what about the hidden gems that people are not even aware of, uh, of the 400 that's out all across of America that are still hidden gems? Yeah, I'm a surprise. I mean, I get out in the field a, a bit, Armstrong, in my work, and, and I go to places that I didn't necessarily know about or I'd heard about but really didn't have a sense about. And I can tell you that 100% that of the time, I'm, I'm moved. Like, I have an emotional reaction to what I'm seeing or what I'm learning about these places. So, like Pecos Trail, outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I went there, I really didn't have any idea what it was about. I go up there and you'd go on this, this walk around and you're learning about the different places that, that were excavated by a, a, a geologist and archeologist years ago. And you learn about the people that were there and the experience they had and the structures they lived in. It's just so powerful, it's like, you just, you, it blows your mind every time you go there. And then I spend a week in the wilderness every summer up in northern Minnesota in Voyager's National Park, and I usually see two or three people in a week, other than wow. my buddy. And I hear the call of the loons every every evening, and we see, you know, turtles and beavers, and we hear moose, and we hear wolves at night sometimes. And to kind of put yourself in the middle of nature like that, it's a very humbling experience and a, a really human experience. Listening to this week's episode.